Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... They were hacked with, um, we assumed back then, Russian-linked ransomware group, and we've now just heard that um, 62 government entities had uh, sensitive data stolen. It's finally been revealed that the Prime Minister's office and the most sensitive government departments in the land have been affected by the HWL Ebsworth data breach. We find out who's been affected. Also on the program... What started out as a, a peaceful, if unauthorised, protest by police officers and I think some other public servants deteriorated quite rapidly into a sustained period of civil disorder... It's day five of the state of emergency in Papua New Guinea after last week's riots, but the situation is still tense. Stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on The Wire. But first, in the past six months, Australia's only drug testing facility, CanTest, in Canberra, found three new substances that were sold as recreational drugs. The new substances were related to the drugs Ritalin, MDMA and ketamine. But because of their unknown nature, the short and long-term effects of these drugs are completely unpredictable. Dominic Giles asked Dr David Caldercott, emergency consultant and senior clinical lecturer at ANU, and clinical lead of CanTest, what are the steps for testing at these drug facilities? You turn up at our fixed site in Moore Street. Um, it's open uh, two evenings a week, um, and you've acquired something. You've either bought it online or you've acquired it uh, from one of your colleagues. They, they tell you what it is or it's been purchased as, as something, but as you're probably aware, you, you can't be completely sure. So you rock up to our fixed site, and the first thing um, that uh, will happen is you'll be greeted cheerfully by our army of, of peer workers. Um, so these are young people who are very across the scene, know exactly what's going on, and are deeply non-judgmental. Uh, we'll ask you to surrender your phone. Uh, you don't get to take photos um, because there are other people there as well, and there's a certain amount of privacy involved. We'll ask you, we, we don't need to know your name. We'll ask you a few questions about uh, what you've got, what you think it is, what your level of experience with drug consumption is like, um, and then you'll be invited through uh, to the testing area. We actually think it's a great idea for uh, the people using our service to see what we're up to. Um, there's no sleight of hand. In fact, performing um, the, uh, the analysis in front of people is kind of like um, doing a, a close quarters uh, magic trick in front of them. Um, and our analysts, are going to be more than happy to chat to you not only about the process of testing and how that works, um, and they'll put in context what this drug might or might not do for you um, with regards to your experience, your past medical health, um, and also give you some ideas about how not to be harmed uh, by the drugs that you've had tested. When an unknown unknown 
is identified, does it trigger some sort of process in which you start studying the substance to understand it better? Yes, indeed. So I think a lot of the time in global service providers of drug checking or pill testing, it's it's a little difficult um, to if, if you find an unknown unknown to drill down into what this is, what the product is. But because of our close proximity, our geographical proximity to the ANU Research School of Chemistry and the fact that all our analysts are from the Research School of Chemistry, um, we're able to take some of these products back to the bigger labs and really smash apart um, the products to find out what they are. So say you find one of these unknown unknowns or a different Lace dangerous substance. Are you allowed to inquire as to where the drugs were acquired, or is that prohibited? Oh, I mean, we have these conversations all the time, and it's entirely up to the punter as to what they want to chat about. So if they want to tell us, well, then they'll tell us. And if they don't, then we have no power to uh, compel them to tell us. Um, a lot of the time we get a fair idea, um, so not a specific name and telephone number or address, um, but the sort of place where they get them. We, we know for a fact that a lot of these novel substances um, that we see are, are certainly not made in Australia. They're made um, overseas, oftentimes in southwest China, for example, where there are many clandestine, very well-organized clandestine laboratories producing such products. So with no testing outside of the ACT, is it likely that these drugs are being circulated elsewhere in Australia? There's no reason to assume that they're not, um, or indeed a wide variety of other drugs, the identity which we we don't know. Um, So, unfortunately, we don't have that information. In the past six months, the CanTest facility has discovered three new substances. Could you please give me a brief rundown on what they are? It's unusual to find something that is uh, absolutely unheard of. And a lot of these new products that we identify are cousins of pre-existing products. So, uh, for example, in this case, we've got a cousin of what your listeners might understand or know as bath salts or cathinones, as we prefer to call them, um, which are stimulant drugs and have been responsible for serious overdoses and indeed deaths around the world. We found uh, something uh, called a benzylpiprazine, which was very common in New Zealand in the sort of early 2000s and a a cousin of that. And we found something that's not too far removed from MDMA or ecstasy uh, in its anticipated effects. Um, But truth be told, um, we genuinely have no idea uh, what the effects of these drugs are. We know that the people who presented with them um, have provided some idea of how they affected them. Um, And the reason why they came to us was because it was a bit unusual or a bit off what they expected it should be. Um, But there are two things that are obviously of concern. The first is how this might affect people in overdose. We we don't know the answer to that. And what a lot of people forget is how might this affect people chronically or over the long term? And again, we have no idea. So we truly have zero or near to zero idea about what the effects of these drugs could be. Dr. David Caldicott, emergency consultant, senior clinical lecturer at the Australian National University and clinical lead of CanTest, speaking there with Dominic Giles. Whenever I want to catch up with current affairs in Australia, I head to thewire.org.au or I follow them on Twitter. I just search for The Wire Radio, all one word. And yes, they're on Facebook too. 
Despite freedom of information requests from earlier last year, it's finally been quietly revealed at the second last day in Parliament before Christmas just how bad the HWL Ebsworth data breach has been across all levels of government. HWL Ebsworth is the largest commercial law firm in Australia and the breach has affected over 60 different areas of government, including the Reserve Bank, the ADF, the AFP and the Prime Minister's office. But this huge data hack had happened some nine months ago and I asked Professor of Cyber Security at Monash University, Nigel Fair, how it unfolded. Yes, it was from April 2023 that HWL Ebsworth um, announced they were hacked with, um, we assumed back then, Russian-linked ransomware group, and we've now just heard that um, 62 government entities have uh, sensitive data stolen. Is this a surprise to you that that so many government agencies have been involved? Well, I suppose the surprise is so many government agencies use the one law firm, Uh, in this case, um, HWL Ebsworth, Um, firstly, and secondly, we don't know whether any of them actually have asked any questions of the law firm about their cybersecurity posture and how they, you know, retain, use, delete, etc., uh, sensitive information. Because I understand that there's things like medical information and I guess things relating to law cases as well. So there could be a lot of personal stuff there. I guess it's a question of how might it be used. Well, I think, yeah, you you get legal advice for a reason and usually it's very sensitive in its nature as well as, yeah, so there could be trademarks, could be intellectual property, it could be all sorts of government secrets as well as personally identifying information. So the criminals behind this might try and do individual um, ransomware demands on, on actual cases or people involved if there's information that's particularly sensitive and could be embarrassing if it got leaked. They might also just sell it on the dark web for uh, for other people to use and maybe do other at- cyber attacks or identity takeover and theft on those people themselves. And and I suppose this sort of begs the question, I mean, you, you may be spending a lot of money keeping the Reserve Bank's data safe. You may be spending a lot of money keeping the Prime Minister's office data safe. But it's not just that, is it? Because a lot of these agencies of government are using so many other outside firms. Yeah, third-party risks are, are the real hot topic at the moment and, and need to be, dare I say, more of a hot topic when it comes to risk management. And you're, you're right saying you can control information and technology and people within your own ecosystem, but it's that third-party um conundrum which really needs to be risk managed and and really thought of a whole lot more and i think that's probably the next step for not just our government but state and territory governments indeed local governments um and and all organizations is um you you can outsource functions but you can't outsource the risk management of those functions is there anything that government departments normally do when they are dealing with outside entities in in terms of protecting data well, there's, there's, I don't think really there's not much that they do do at the moment. Certainly none that's been reported on with this matter. What they should do is, is another matter. They need to um, you know, start asking some hard questions. They need to ask um, outsource organisations or third parties that they use, what their risk management controls is perhaps, whether they use uh, you know, uh, international frameworks like the NIST um, cybersecurity framework or the ISO 
27001 framework for information security. Why did, did you think the government left it until just before Christmas to announce this? Oh, look, <laughs> it's a good question. The, the cynic in me could be, say, because it's just before Christmas and people are trying to switch off. But on the, on the same token, it actually does take time to understand the length and breadth of these these data breaches. You know, for example, we only just recently had the news of St Vincent's Health Organisation having a data breach and some, some weeks later they still can't tell you the length and breadth because it actually takes time to understand um, who's got access to the information, what's been exfiltrated, and even harder if the criminal gangs use you know, anti-forensic techniques to, to, to cover their tracks. Nigel Fair, Professor of Cybersecurity at Monash University, speaking with me there. I'm Roderick Chambers, and this is The Wire, around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Reception isn't always the best out here in the bush. But if I miss The Wire, I listen to the podcast. The Wire. Across Australia weeknights on Indigenous and Community Radio. And now podcast. Today is day five of the State of Emergency Declaration in Papua New Guinea after violent riots erupted on Wednesday last week. PNG's Prime Minister James Marape is in the spotlight, facing a no-confidence vote in February exactly 18 months after being elected. His government has already seen six ministers resign. Eduardo Jordan asked project lead for the Pacific Hub at the Griffith Asia Institute, Dr Tess Newton-Kane, to explain what has happened in Port Moresby. Well, we've seen a very tumultuous time in Papua New Guinea over the last few days, starting on January the 10th, where what started out as a peaceful, if unauthorised, protest by police officers and I think some other public servants deteriorated quite rapidly into a sustained period of civil disorder, rioting, looting, burning of businesses. We've seen, very sadly, the death toll resulting from that is now at 22, but possibly may go higher. Some of that was replicated in Ley, which is Papua New Guinea's second biggest city. You know, it, it affected an awful lot of people and obviously caused a great deal of disruption and fear in the city. The government has responded by announcing a two-week state of emergency, which is still in, is currently in place. My understanding is that things are, are slowly returning to normal in Port Moresby. It's been a very quiet few days. People have generally been staying at home, close to home, only going out to get essential goods that they need to. A number of businesses, obviously a number of businesses are closed because of damage. Other businesses have reduced the need for their staff to be on site. But it does seem that the city is gradually returning to normal at that level. So what are the main reasons or what do we know why these protests were detonated in Port Moresby and other cities across PNG? Well, the trigger seems to have been some confusion and mistakes made around how tax coding was applied to the first round of pay that the police officers received on the 12th of January when they got their pay advices the claim is that they saw that they had been charged an incorrect tax rate and that had meant that they received an awful lot less in that pay than they expected to. 
police officers in Papua New Guinea, like many civil servants and other people, are literally living paycheck. And this was their first pay after Christmas. So to see it reduced unexpectedly was obviously a matter of concern. Now, there's some dispute as to what went on there. The government has claimed that there was a glitch in a new computer processing system that had incorrectly applied the tax rates and that that would be rectified in the next pay, which will come at the end of the month. But, you know, there's been a lot of rumour and counter-rumour about changes to the tax regime, changes to the tax rates. There have been some tax changes in Papua New Guinea. I'm not sure that they've been very well communicated. There just seems to be a lot of confusion around them. So that seems to have been what started this process in terms of the protest at Parliament. But in that, I think then what we saw was a lot of opportunism on the part of people who realised that the police were otherwise occupied and that this presented an opportunity to attack businesses, to engage in looting, and then that deteriorated further into assaults, including sexual assault of staff at some of those businesses and also burning of business. You know, we've seen this. It's not uncommon, unfortunately, in Port Moresby to see issues like this, to see events like this where the the, uh, security situation can deteriorate very rapidly. So after these protests or these uh, violent events that happened over there, Prime Minister James Marape has declared a state of emergency across the country. How critical and delicate the situation is at this point, do you believe? Well, like I said, in terms of order on the streets, that seems to be returning to normal. And provided that people can get access to food and other necessities, I think we can hope that it will remain that case. What your listeners may not appreciate, Eduardo, is that for many people that live in Port Moresby, their mode of survival is that they will spend the day selling scones or beetle nuts or cigarettes or some, you know, some small commodity, maybe at a roadside market, and to generate a small amount of money. And they will then use that money to buy food and necessities for their families. So a lot of people in Port Moresby, they're not in a situation where they have a pantry full of food that can keep them going until the shops resupply. They're they're expecting to be able to shop every day for a small amount. So provided people can get access to food, then I think the street level security will remain fairly stable. Where the volatility now seems to have shifted to is the political sphere, because this has fed what was already coming, which is a push for a change of government by way of a motion of no confidence. And so we're seeing the chatter and the discourse is much more focused now on MPs resigning from the government and people for, you know, the machinations that are associated with seeking to uh, unseat Marape as prime minister and effect a change of government. Dr. Tess Newton Kane from the Griffith Asia Institute there speaking with Eduardo Jordan. Hey there, I'm Hamish McDonald. Around Australia, you're listening to The Wire. Take it easy. As the largest ever restructure of the NDIS is set to begin, Indigenous disability experts say its success depends on the extent to which the review's recommendations are implemented. The findings of the NDIS review and Royal Commission have called for the NDIS to be more inclusive of First Nations Australians in its decision-making and its governance and leadership. 
Talia Kreft asked Professor John Gilroy, Professor in Indigenous Health and Disability at Sydney University, how the NDIS review addressed key areas of need. It's touched on many of the important areas that I've certainly researched. They've certainly consulted widely. I'm rather disappointed that they did not bring in much of the existing research that has been done regarding Aboriginal and Tosha Islander people with disability, which tells me that the review didn't really properly explore the research archive. Rather, they went around and spoke to people like many of the other researchers have done. So they could have saved a lot of time by exploring existing research. At least the Royal Commission into Abuse, Neglect and and Exploitation actually brought in a lot of the existing research in the space. So I found that rather disappointing. Also, the one recommendation that they put up about us is the pretty much a paraphrase of recommendations put up about us over the last 40 years of disability research in this country. Now, I've actually done a historical, many historical papers on Aboriginal disability policy, and there's, it's the same recommendations over the last 40 years. So to be honest with you, I, I have no faith that this review is going to achieve anything for us Aboriginal and Torres Strait people. What changes which have not been addressed in the NDIS report would you like to see enacted to ensure Indigenous participants' needs are better met? Stop duplicating the research that all of us Aboriginal people are doing. It's doing my head in. Much of what they've written about, I've been writing about for 15 to 20 years. You, you replaced disability services, which was used in the 2010s and 1990s, and replaced that with NDIS. It's the same thing. What do you make of the key recommendation specific to First Nations Australians living with a disability calling for an alternative commissioning process to be established in partnership with First Nations representatives, communities and participants? To be honest with you, I don't even know what it means. I mean, are we going to have some Aboriginal subs go to a small group of clicky Aboriginal people? That's not going to make the agency culturally competent. Because the challenges lies not within the agency itself or another layer of bureaucracy. It's with the skills of the NDIA agency partners in the communities. That, that recommendation is not community grounded. It's ideologically grounded. And, it's going to, and, and the, the, the scope and the ability of that so-called unit of the department is going to be limited by its resources and by the skills of the people on it. Many Indigenous communities face challenges in accessing disability support, including the NDIS. Do you think this issue has been adequately dealt with in the review? I think the review all in all has taken a deficit-based model when it comes to to, to um, uh, the experience of Aboriginal people with disabilities living in communities. And I think that's where it fell short. This review scope is just like the other reviews that we had of like systems relating to Aboriginal people. I'm talking, um, you know, child protection. I'm talking aged care. I'm talking um, health, um, so on, so on. So I don't think this review is going to pick up on the strengths of what a lot of um, agencies, mainstream, generic and Aboriginal community control are doing. There has been so much progress in the NDIS, particularly uh, the work done by Nacho, the work done by um, um, uh, IHA, the work done by me. You know, I had the first Aboriginal staff disability research team in the country. You know, we have done so much amazing work. We have published so much work. And it's disappointing that the review did not pick up on this. 
simply going around and talking to people is not going to get good insight into what's going on because Aboriginal run research actually has Indigenous research methodologies. But simply going around and yelling to people like they have done, it's not going to properly capture the, the balanced experience of living with disabilities. And this review is it hasn't really done that, I don't think. I'm not convinced. And John, how do you think Australia should be leading the way in creating a level playing field for First Nations people with a disability? Have a strength-based focus and stop talking about all of us that, as in all of us are the, are the same disadvantage and that our experience of disability is all the same. The experience of disability is so diverse. I've met Aboriginal people with disabilities who have their own businesses, who have their own consultancies who are doctors, professors, at senior admin staff. I've also met Aboriginal people with disabilities who are living in, in the worst disadvantage. I've also met some Aboriginal people with disabilities who have no desire to leave remote communities despite the fact that they, that they, that they are not or cannot receive the kind of services they could get in metropolitan Sydney. The, the experience of remoteness and regionalisation is so diverse and this is not being captured. It's rather heartbreaking reading that report and reflecting on my 20 years of research. Professor John Gilroy, Professor in Indigenous Health and Disability at Sydney University, speaking there with Talia Kreft. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the community radio network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Listener.